0: We have now done a couple of parts where we talked about the problems, the failures of the education system. So now we can talk about the solutions. This is Hostages No More, part three by Betsy DeVos. And as always, we will go through the contents, we will do an analysis where we talk about the value of the book, the good and the bad, and then we will talk some big picture stuff to try to wrap it into a broader understanding of the world. So, the contents of this part of the book, this part three, like I said, in this particular chapter is titled, I didn't write it in my notes, so I'm going to go look it up, (laughs) or I didn't write it in my secondary notes, the outline for the show, The Education Freedom Agenda. So, one thing she points out is that the school, school choice is about getting to apply already allocated money. It's not like a handout. And a lot of people see vouchers as a kind of handout. That's how I saw it, too. Uh, When I would consider or think about the idea of a voucher, it seemed like just another handout from the government. But really, this is money that has already been paid for purposes of uh, the school system. The school system presently treats kids as the same, and education freedom would be different. Things that are already in place that are solutions to the issues that we have are things like public charter schools. They are taxpayer-funded and tuition-free, they're independently run, and they foster a public school choice. Now, a lot of this, I think, a lot of the issues is in the branding, because again, public charter schools, when I was growing up, I didn't know what that was. I had heard the term before, and I didn't know what it was. But it allows students to get a different kind of educational experience, and other than where they live, because a lot of what happens in your educational career is just based on the lottery, the geographic lottery. There are magnet schools that have a particular theme or convening principle that they follow. They usually have higher academic requirements and some shared interest that they're built around. There's obviously homeschool. That's an option for parents, which has, after the whole COVID issue, has become more commonly used by parents to teach their children. But there are other ways to foster kind of educational freedom in this particular system. So there are tax credit scholarships. Again, these are taxes that are already paid that are used for scholarships. There are education savings accounts. So funds get deposited specifically for education and they're used by parents in the ways that they deem necessary or useful for their students. There's the voucher system. Again, we talked about how the term voucher might not be the best, (laughs) but the voucher system can be used at any school of their choice, so it's actually a good program. And then the author goes into discussing why education freedom will help everybody, why it's good for everybody. So it's tailored to the student as opposed to tailored to the school or, or tailored to the adults in the equation. They get to learn how they want, and that's something we'll talk about later. So just as my aside here, there is concern when we have too much of this kind of hippie talk where it's, all students, yeah, do whatever you want and figure out, you know, what you want to learn about and how you want to learn it and all those kinds of things. I think it should be definitely more based on the parents and the professionals who are involved. You know, we need actual teacher professionals, though, not the kinds that we've been subject to for the past few decades. But so those professionals would have a better understanding of how to impart particular knowledge or how a student learns through the process of getting to know the student. So they'd be able to figure out ways uh, that better, are better tailored to a student but are imparting knowledge that they deem is the most useful or beneficial or necessary for the student to have. We really have to stop pretending that kids aren't idiots. Kids are idiots. And that's just a fact of our gestational period. We have a long gestation as a species where we have to, we are learning a lot and trying to figure things out, but we have underdeveloped brains and very little understanding of the world. So it's ridiculous to keep pretending that they have this kind of preternatural grasp on the world and who they are and what they want and all those sorts of things. They don't. So, as she says, it's the, it's the kind of education that works best for them, and if a government assigned school doesn't work, then they get to change school, and they can mix things like homeschooling and, um, you know, in-person schooling and government schooling as necessary that works the best. The current education system, as we talked about in previous parts, is based on the factory production line model. That's what we needed, was more people to exit the school system and enter factory production. So it made sense to have certain artifacts within the education system for that purpose. The per-student funding has tripled, you know, from 1965 to today. But rather than this being beneficial to students or even the teachers, what happens is you hire more and more adults and particularly administrative staff. Those are the largest growth has been in administrative staff, non-classroom hires. So people like managers, data analysts, HR directors, central office staff. It hasn't been going to higher salaries for teachers or to betterment of student experience. The student enrollment basically stayed flat from 2001 to 2019. The number of teachers rose by 7%. You know, that's a good thing. That means um, more teachers relative to the students. But the number of district staff members rose 79%. So the vast majority of the excess spending that's going in is being spent on administrative staff, which doesn't provide a direct benefit to the students. And it's bureaucratic. It adds a whole bunch of extra red tape and can be just an overall problem. The NAEP, N-A-P-E, gives a picture of student achievement over time, and that suggests that math and reading have flatlined or declined over the recent past. The struggling students especially have gotten worse than they used to be. And the author acknowledges that testing isn't perfect but suggests that we need to be able to measure the outputs of standardized tests. So after these kids go through these processes, we need to be able to measure what comes out of it when it comes to how the students fare thereafter. But 34% of students are below basic readers, and Obama gave a $7 billion grant to the education system. This was in one of the years that he was president. It was the largest ever that had been given, $7 billion, and it failed. Uh, Students are doing worse after the fact. Taxpayers are paying more and more and getting less and less. We are fourth in spending when it comes to education and way out of the top ten in performance. Students are being challenged and inspired less. There's been, this one really hurts, there's been a 21% increase in kids who never read for pleasure. Oh, I have to sit, I mean I'm already sitting, but that, that one's a tough one. Education freedom is not only just according to the author, but it also works. So you have higher performance of students and you have better outcomes for teachers. There were these things, the Education Freedom Scholarships, Trump pledged to do a lot when it came to school choice while he was in office. But the involvement of it, like they were going to, it was going to be part of the State of the Union in 2020, but it was reduced to a single sentence. And there was this opportunity scholarship that was given to a student. She didn't know she was getting it, Janaya, and she got it as part of the State of the Union, but everything was overshadowed by what they did with Rush Limbaugh and giving him what the Medal of Freedom or something like that. So the author was uh, none too pleased with this situation. The union bosses specifically say that public schools are being destroyed whenever there's this talk of school choice. That's the only line they really have. But you have to understand the interests of the unions. More teachers serve the unions. Good and bad teachers are treated the same. It doesn't matter to a union. When you're getting dues, it doesn't matter if they're a good or a bad teacher. Union bosses get half a million dollars a year, and they end up funding elections. So much money goes through these that I think we talked about in another part, that the money ends up being donated at a better than 95% rate to Democrats and helps fund those elections, and so more benefits are given to teachers' unions. The rewards are based on seniority, not performance, so it's just if you've been here a long time, you get more. Not that you performed well. There's no incentive to perform well. And preserving bad teachers serves unions. It's better for unions to preserve bad teachers. They get more union dues, and bad teachers are more in need of union protection than good teachers are, so they're more likely to stick with it. But the pandemic itself made the case for education freedom and all the issues because schools approach it so differently all over the board. It made a good case for needing more education freedom. And she laments the fact that the dysfunctional White House just didn't have the right focus throughout this process. The Great Parental Awakening. So this is when there were a bunch of parents at school boards decrying the closures of the schools, saying that it was having a dramatic impact on the education of their children. And the impacts were the worst on the students who could afford it the least. So Washington State was actually the first state to shut down a school due to an infection of a relative. There was a relative of a student or a staff member something like that. And so they were the first one to shut down a school on that basis. The author, DeVos, told the White House to get ahead of the impact that it would have on students. They suspended payments for student loans. There was the transition to remote learning. The Democrat, Patty Murray, asked what is the top-down plan, but uh, DeVos specifically said, no, these plans have to be local. The whole point is they're going to have different experiences, and so they have to have the latitude to be able to choose locally what is best to do. Dr. Burks and Dr. Burks just came out with a book, and she uh, stated, just openly, trying to get her, you know, kind of liberal bona fides up, she stated openly that she lied to the Trump administration about how dangerous the virus was, and about numbers, and all those sorts of things. She did all these things to undermine the administration's understanding of what was going on. But anyway, she was the one who said that in-person learning was important, so, but Fauci took the other tack of not caring about any of the impacts, but just thinking that you 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 should pay attention to the virus. That's the only thing that you should take into consideration, while Burks considered more factors. But over time, they realized that keeping schools closed was not supported by the evidence. Places like Denmark and Korea and Japan all went back to school really early, and there were no related outbreaks or specific issues related to those reopening. And you have students falling behind now. And we've seen a lot more studies recently coming out about this, where a lot of the major publications, the mainstream media now, years later, are willing to say and publish studies, stories about studies, about the impacts on students and how detrimental it's been to their development. And then you had the whole issue in LA, there were the union demands that were desperately trying to keep schools closed for an extended period of time, and schools were being overwhelmed with funding at this point, they were just getting tons and tons of money related to COVID and the response to COVID and everything, but they didn't have anything to do with it. Then you have the Loudoun County school board meetings where the, t- the parents were getting up there and saying how terrible it was, you know, when it came to masking, when it came to the school closures, and how much uh, developmental delay they were seeing in their children. And these are the ones who are called domestic terrorists and being investigated by the FBI. She re- references the Floyd racial reckoning and CRT. And how there's this one intro to critical race theory that was part of a program, an education program in the United States. And how math had to have an ethnic studies framework and how math dictates economic oppression. And it wasn't just in public schools, it was in private schools as well. There was this uh, Grays School that was separating students by race, and a lot of other schools that were teaching kids what to think about things, and leaving students afraid to speak in class, and bullying parents to accept the morality at home. Governor Brown in Oregon, he saw disparities in the ability to read requirement, so there was a requirement that every student had to have the ability to read, and there were racial disparities in this, the results of this, so he just removed the requirement. And then there were these whole issues about how they would defend teaching CRT, but keep also saying that it's not being taught. And she suggests that there will always be these schools with these kinds of agendas, they're always going to pop up somewhere. And that's why parents need the ability to choose between schools, because this whole system is designed to hold poor students hostage. If you have plenty of money, then you can go somewhere else, but poor students don't have those options. So what's a parent to do? Education savings accounts, like we talked about before, those are important. Mixed remote learning. There was this one a language class, or a famous author. Yeah, he was talking about writing or something like that. But he did this, he did a remote class that had 500 different classes watching him. So there are a lot of options and abilities to be able to extend this. They also did similar things with applied geometry and robotics. And this kind of unbundled education idea where you can mix and match different aspects of education. And she points out that things like, you know, television and streaming, all, there have been all these advances in technology and other industries have been disrupted. But education is the least disrupted industry on the planet. Everything else has evolved. The man who designed the education system died before the phone was invented. She also suggests here that no child is average, that two 10-year-olds aren't at the same place. Even if they're both 10, they're not at the same place when it comes to education. And asks, why does education have to be in a building? Why do we have to close for summer? And why do we have to start with the sun? Why does the, is that when the educational day begins? Public schools don't close. They don't get closed down. You know, like a, a school that's not making money would get closed down. Or a business that's not making money would get closed down. Public schools don't do that, but they should. She wants parents to reclaim the role as a primary educator by doing a number of things. So contact everyone and let them know that you want education freedom. Hearing from constituents works. So your local representatives. You can open a school. You can open your own school and conduct it in a way that is beneficial to students. If you have a passion for the arts or entrepreneurship or writing or reading, you can make your own school and follow those things. Ask to see the curriculum. Use FOIA requests to get the curriculum from your children's schools. Run for school board. Be an education voter. Vote for people, for candidates, who put education first and have the right ideas when it comes to education. And there's a Lincoln quote here, The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. And she finally says that freedom is America. You know, this kind of a thing, education freedom, should be especially American. (laughs) Then there's an epilogue where she talks about how she resigned in 2021, said the president wasn't handling defeat well. She referenced January 6th and how the president failed to put a stop to it, that his behavior was increasingly erratic. Uh, She referenced even the 25th Amendment and talked to Pence about it and chastises uh, the president in saying that there was no mistaking the impact your rhetoric had. You know, a lot of that, and there's been multiple parts of this where there's just amplification of disingenuous narratives. But anyway, that's the end of the book so analysis-wise there are a number of great ideas and important points in here Uh, you know parents being in control of their children's education super important and the failure of the current system there's a lot of pointing that out Uh, there was some interesting stuff about how everything that you have to go through to actually get something done which is how the framers designed it but there were especially large impediments when it came to this particular white house uh, trying to get things done There are some problems related to it, you know, it's kind of similar to a socialist idea that if nobody had to work at McDonald's, they'd be classical composers and write great literature, just sit around being productive in other ways. Kids are idiots, like we talked about, (laughs) they don't know what they want, they don't know how or what they should be taught, so giving them too much freedom on that front is a bad idea, and a lot of times when she talks about it, She talks about the students being in control, you know, and them deciding what the best way for them to learn is and and that sort of thing, which just leaves them confused and in the wrong place. They just came out of the womb, all right? They don't have a lot of information, so it doesn't make sense to give them the reins of anything. And like I said, it kind of alluded to, she perpetuates a lot of anti-Trump fantasies. There are a few of them throughout the book, and so that that can be frustrating. I don't know if she's trying to get a spot on one of the liberal talk shows or something like that. I don't know, but uh, whatever the case, it's still frustrating. So, big picture-wise, there's an old adage. So, a liberal comes across a fence and immediately tears it down. A conservative comes across a fence and stops, then asks, why was it put here? So the question is, are there things, aspects of the way that education has been done historically that were put there for a reason, either a conscious reason or a subconscious reason? that had certain benefits you know just like if you're looking at deep history when it comes to religion there are things that might seem like oh well we can just reason our way to those or we don't need that because it doesn't apply to us anymore and not realize the actual benefit to those things you know something odd like i don't know eating shellfish or something like that (laughs) say we go through and scientifically prove that it's great to eat shellfish you know when it comes to your health or something and so there's no reason to have that prohibition But then we eschew the the other benefits, the ancillary benefits that might come from that, that are things like community. If you have to give something up, then it entrenches you more in a community of people with shared values. So the more arbitrary or the more (laughs) that you actually have to give up, the more beneficial it is to those positive emotional connections to that group. So by the same token, there are a lot of things that could come from the structured educational system that we don't realize. So it could foster shared beliefs and a strong unit. Just if you have uh, an educational system that would have historically been, you know, mostly guided by and instituted by parents and, you know, overseen by parents. And then you had a focal point, you know, who just is telling you the information that you need to know. There are a lot of things about that that could create stronger units units of people that have shared understandings and shared beliefs that would be a benefit you don't realize. It's more likely to impart information that is going to be useful rather than not useful, because these are people who have done it already. They've gone through the whole process of survival (laughs) and creating a community, as opposed to the children who haven't done or accomplished anything at this point. There are millions of things that the traditional education system likely provides that we don't necessarily understand that it would, So the question is, would it have failed so miserably? You know, the education system for sure has failed. But would it have failed so miserably if we had just gotten rid of unions and prevented toxic ideological propaganda from a particular side? Would it have necessarily failed in the same way? And that's not likely the case. If you had, uh, you know, an education system with teachers that's based on meritocracy, where the performance of the teacher is tied directly to how well they do when it comes to their employment, And then you had, you know, teaching that it was a competitive series of teachers trying to figure out the best way to impart particular kinds of knowledge that didn't have anything to do with toxic ideological propaganda. Then would it have likely been better? I mean, I'm I'm sure it would have been leagues better. But like she talked about earlier in the book, why a building? Why have it in a building? There are a bunch of things that could have been beneficial from the fact that you have it in a single building. A shared experience. You have a hero's journey microcosm. Every day, that's what you're doing as a student. You're leaving home, you're going off to have an adventure, and then you're returning home. That's the hero's journey. You have to overcome, you know, some kind of obstacle. And you're doing that on a daily basis. You get to see your instructor in person, so you have a, a more direct connection and understanding of what their expectations are and, and them as a person and what you sh- should learn or can learn from them, etc. You learn to associate with your peers, and not just the peers that you like, your friends, but peers that you don't like, which is an important skill to have as you're growing up. So being able to deal with adverse people, people who you don't necessarily agree with or don't even want to be around, but you still have to deal with them because they are fellow people. I mean, that alone, just consider the fact that one of the things about social media is that you can isolate yourself and ensconce yourself from people you don't want to hear from or don't like. And you don't have to learn those skills. You know, you wonder how much now, because in classrooms, people are stultified some more. There was that whole bullying campaign that says, no, you can't say anything, you know, even critical now of another student because it might hurt their feelings. How much has that just undermined the ability to develop those skills to be able to deal with the fact that other people have different ideas uh, that other people have People have different interests and that you're not the center of the universe. Why does the education start with the sun? That was another one that she mentioned. Why does it start with the sun? And there could be, you know, ancillary benefits from that. You know, it fosters a culture of productivity during particular time and rest hours during another time. And you're more likely to get vitamin D if, if you're out in the sun during sun time. Why close for summer? Uh, so historically, it's probably just for farming so that they could use students for, you know, unpaid labor. But nah, it's probably a pretty bad idea now to just take uh, several months off in the middle of a school year and just lose all the gains that you had during the school year. Yeah, it's probably a bad idea. But there's a reason that parental culture and education as a proxy has been dictatorial throughout history. The parents survived and reproduced. You have accomplished at least that much. You know, the, the child has not accomplished anything at this point. But so much of, a, like, modern culture is about just this abdication of responsibility. It's, I don't know, you choose. You pick, kid. <laughs> you child that just came out of the womb. You pick all the stuff. Long term, this has a lot of negative effects, but, you know, especially you have a whole bunch of people who are completely stupid and don't know anything about the world, making a lot of big decisions. But even beyond that, you have this effect of removing the connection between the members of the family, because the family used to be directly intertwined in this aspect of, of growth. Which just created more connections, but when you don't have that, then you lose that connection. So, giving students unfettered control over their education, uh, it uses a similar logic to socialist arguments about employment. You know, if people had infinite options of employment and the government subsidized their choices, they would choose to be productive and pick the best things for themselves. That's the fantasy when it comes to socialism. So if children had infinite options for education and the government subsidized their choices, they would choose the most productive options and pick the best things for themselves. Those two are very similar fantasies that people have this uh, kind of unique understanding of everything they are and everything they're inclined to do or not inclined to do or what would make them happy or not happy or what type of job they should do, what kinds of things they should learn, whatever it is, people don't have very good understanding of any of those things and on top of that, uh, there's a society at large that needs to function and when you have everybody deciding that they're going to be novelists or content creators, (laughs) if everybody's doing that, then we lose a whole bunch of the function of of society at large all right so having been totally critical uh in in that little bit of it of the idea of children having so much control over the education we definitely should side more we should err on the side of devos and her perspective on education than we should on the other side Uh, the big issue is that we have a lot of groups governments and unions and the like who have a vested interest in monetizing the children So they are pushing in a particular way for that reason, so that they can benefit off of it. So we have to be able to push back against that, and we definitely should be erring on the side of the DeVos perspective on education. But she also, uh, to give her credit, (laughs) she spent a lot of time talking about parental rights in education. So as long as we are focusing more on parental rights in it, it should primarily be the parents making the education decisions for students, substantive and otherwise. And for a lot of reasons, not just because it could foster competition between schools, which is the best for everybody, but definitely for that reason, too. So uh, having been critical of the idea in the current state of things, it's definitely best to err on that side. You know, if we can make parents the primary determiners of that, that would be great. But we definitely have to err on the side of more educational freedom. Just in general. So uh, anyway, that was that was that one. We finally finished that book. I thought I was going to do it in one episode. I really did that entire thing. But it took three massive episodes to get through that whole book. So that's that one. I'm going to have a special book coming up that's specifically related to uh, what has happened recently with the FBI and Trump. And it's going to be a surprise. Yeah, it's just going to pop up out of nowhere and have a whole bunch of good information. But otherwise, we just had Frankenstein and we've got San Francisco. I'm working my way through that. But otherwise, yeah, lots of books coming down. So I hope all is well. See you on the next one. Right, bye bye.